Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Hello, I want to welcome everyone to our WCAPS podcast. My name is Bonnie Jenkins. I'm the founder and president of WCAPS. And we are here doing another podcast of our Vibe series, our Vision, Impact, Voice, and Engagement series. And I'm really happy to have on here right now a woman who I met when I was out in Ghana a few months ago who's doing some really great work in Nigeria on issues of health and things like that. So I'm going to have Niniola introduce herself and say a few words about her organization and what she does, and then we'll get into other questions on the podcast. So Hello, Neolia. How are you doing? I am good, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Bonnie. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself because I know you, you have a very beautiful name and I just want to make sure I don't say it incorrectly. So if you could just tell the audience your name and, and what are you doing in your organization that you're working? Okay, sure. Um, my name is Niniola Sholeye. I'm the managing director of an organization based in Lagos, Nigeria called DRASA Health Trust. And DRASA, D-R-A-S-A, stands for Dr. Ameo Stella Adadavo Health Trust. So it's an organization based here in Nigeria and we're working to pretty much protect society from all kinds of public health threats by advancing infection control practices, looking at hygiene and sanitation, and generally preparedness for infectious disease outbreaks. So because of that, our mission is very tied to preparing and protecting the country from future outbreaks. And that ties into global health security and, you know, national and global issues of that nature. So that's what we do. Great. Thanks. And how long have you been working there? I actually joined when DRASA founded. So we officially launched October 2015. So two years and a couple months in here doing this. Great. And how's it been for the past two years for the organization? It's been good. It's a bit slow because even after the big Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014, which is what prompted us to start DRASA in memory of the doctor who was involved in helping to stop the outbreak here in Nigeria, even despite the fact that we controlled it in Nigeria compared to the other three countries, getting system-wide change is always hard. So it's been slow, but we're making progress, we're moving, and we're very committed to this because it's clear that what happened in 2014, we don't want that to happen again. It started in a small village in Guinea and ended up in everywhere from Scotland to Spain to the U.S. I mean, this is what we're trying to work to prevent in the future. That's great. Having done some work on infectious disease when I was at State Department, um, mm. I really appreciate the work that you're doing out there and, and how much you're working to try to avoid infectious disease. If you can't avoid them because it's really difficult to do that, to be able yeah. to respond in a good way. So that's really exactly. important work. So where are you from, actually? I'm from Nigeria. I'm a U.S. citizen, but I was born in Lagos. Left, though, when I was four. So I grew up in the U.K., London and Scotland, and also in the U.S. But my background, as far as my family and heritage, were Nigerian and actually part Ghanaian as well. My mom is Ghanaian. So West Africa, I guess, in general. But I've lived in different places. Great. And, and I assume most of your family is still there in Nigeria. Yeah. Yeah. Most everyone's here. So it must it's be nice been, to go back home. <laughs> oh, so nice. It's been great being back here and just being so close to everyone. Because before we had to consider things like time zones and all of that, but now we're pretty much all in the same place. So it's, it's nice. So how did you hear about the job? How did you get into that work that you're doing now? 
So I was actually working at an organization called Management Sciences for Health in D.C. and supporting projects that they had all over the globe. And as a global health organization, when Ebola hit West Africa, it was something that we were very aware of because we had offices and projects in the three most affected countries, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. However, when Ebola hit Nigeria, basically a Liberian guy flew into Lagos Airport in Nigeria and he was sick and the government hospitals were on strike, so he was taken to a private clinic. And that private hospital that he was taken to was where my aunt worked. She was a doctor there for 20-something years. And she was actually the one that diagnosed him with Ebola. She was the one that contained him and made sure that he didn't leave the country, didn't leave the hospital rather, and obviously was the person to alert all the authorities and the government that, hey, we have this potential threat. What do we do? What are the processes? What are the protocols? And so she and her team worked very closely with the government, with international bodies like WHO and MSF. Unfortunately, four of them got sick and died, including my aunt. And so after she died, we just felt very strong as a family that we needed to do something that would ensure that the same thing could happen again, but with less loss of life, obviously. After losing her, we just thought, okay, how do we ensure that doctors and nurses and people in hospitals and in the health sector are prepared and they know how to identify Ebola versus any of these other infectious diseases and they know what are the national policies? What are they supposed to do when someone walks into their hospital with something infectious? All of these things really weren't defined at the time. So there was a lot of chaos, a lot of confusion and a lot of reacting rather than being prepared for. So that was something that we felt was a gap. And that's why we started the organization that I'm working for now. That's great. You were able to personalize the story, which is really, really good yeah. to hear about how you got involved and the sacrifices that your family has made for that. What is it like being a woman of color working in this area or being a female doing some of this work in Nigeria? It's interesting because the public health field in general is heavily female, but mm-hmm. with infectious diseases and things like that, it's not so well defined. I mean, here in Nigeria, we have some local expertise. We have some people doing some great work here, but historically we've relied and depended on foreign aid or people from the U.S. or the U.K. or wherever to come to help us figure out things. So that's kind of the narrative that we're trying to change now is to say that, look, we do have the capacity and ability to be prepared and to deal with these things on our own. We don't always have to sit back and wait for a disaster and then start looking externally for people to rescue us. So I would say it's an interesting time to be in this field as a woman and especially as a woman of color. But I feel strongly that people on the continent and outside people of color need to play a bigger role in this kind of work. I think that's a really good point that you're making about women and women of color playing a bigger part of the work. And maybe you can help our audience understand the impact of health issues on women. Issues like health and water security and food security, a lot of these peace and security issues really impact women a great deal because of the role of women as caretakers or as nurses and things like that. Say a little bit about that for our audience to understand why issues of peace and security have a much more of an impact on women. The Ebola outbreak is a perfect example. Women traditionally, especially in this part of the world, are very much caretakers. They're expected to be the ones taking care of the kids when they're sick, the husbands when they're sick, and therefore, should their husband or child have something infectious, they're exposing themselves. They're the ones that basically are responsible for ensuring the health and security of their homes. And that's really where all of this starts. It starts at the community level on the individual home level. And so a lot of the work we do is actually engaging women leaders and communities because it's one thing to get work with government to get the health system ready for whatever comes and make sure that we're secure. But it's another thing to go into the communities where these diseases start and educate them and empower them to know what to do. So we go into communities and we look for those women who are basically the backbone of their families. And it's so crucial that they understand what their options are. They 
understand what to look out for because they can literally change the tide of a potential outbreak just based on their actions. So they do hold a lot of power. And what are some of the challenges that you find in doing some of that work and reaching out to women there and helping them understand the role that they play? There are a couple of challenges. I'll highlight some now. I mean, one big challenge is the kind of society we work in here. It's very patriarchal. So women, they have power in the sense that they are responsible for cooking the food and taking care of the home and taking care of the health of of the people in the home. But when it comes to decision-making, it's very different. Nigeria is a very religious country, Muslim and Christian, but extremes in both cases. And so women are not necessarily given the kind of voices that you see in other parts of the world. And that's one of the things that we work on is helping them figure out how to work with their husbands who are considered the heads of the home to ensure that some of these things are done. And another thing is, another challenge we have is just generally misconceptions. And that I think is just tied to the culture of where we are and what we're doing here. People think back to all these traditional customs and misconceptions about the use of modern medicine versus traditional medicine. Oh, we can't use that because it's actually going to make my child sick. And so there's a lot of cultural things, I guess. And when I say misconceptions, sometimes it's even just a simple rumor that's spreading in a particular area about something. So those things you kind of have to just work through, engaging the community and people that live there, especially, like I said, the women, because if you can get the women on board, you can ensure that households are on board. And that's really the goal at the end of the day. So do you try to also engage the men to help educate them as well? On the- yes. So we do that as a secondary level. Once we've gotten the women, we then encourage them to to bring not just the men, but also their kids and engage them as well. But we find that it's always easier to start with the women. It just works out better and it has a better impact. Right. And you talked about some of this, but what are some of the unique things about working in Africa on some of these issues? It's a lot of what I said, you know, where we take religion very seriously and religious beliefs and cultural beliefs and traditional beliefs trump a lot of things that are facts. And so working against all those things and not just in the health sector, that cuts across just life here. And then dealing with the role of women. I mean, we still have so many issues like in the north of Nigeria, it's a completely different place from where we are right now in the south. You know, northern Nigeria, you still have teenage brides, you still have women giving birth, even though they really don't, they don't want to keep having children, but their husbands are either looking for more sons or, you know, all of those kind of things. And they have no access to, well, even if they have access to contraception, they're not allowed to use it. So there's so many issues around empowering women and the need to really give them a voice and put them on the forefront and let people understand that by changing the life of one woman, the impact is, it's immense. I mean, you're looking at all of her children, you're looking at her husband, you're looking at her in-laws, you're looking at the impact that she has within her community, the role she plays in her community. And so I think it's challenging, yes, but the opportunities are huge. And we're in a time now where people are really looking to change things and it's changing. It's changing slowly, but it is changing. That's good. Who are your role models? My role models. That's a good question. I would actually say that for me personally, my role models have been people that I've been close to in my life. So they're all my relatives. My late grandfather was an amazing man, a doctor, and I kept running away from the medical profession and the health field. But I ended up right back here because the people that I admire the most, my grandfather and my aunt, who was the one that we named Jasa after and who was involved in Ebola, you know, those two were amazing doctors, amazing people, amazing caretakers. Just there were so many things about them that I admired. And it, it's almost like it wasn't until they were gone that I realized it. So those, I can say those two are, are my biggest role models. Of course, young women are a very important part of all of this. Do you have yeah. much of an opportunity to speak to young women as well as the adult women in your work? Yeah. 
Absolutely. So we actually have a very strong school program and we're working in secondary school. So that's high school age. And so it's at a time when these women are deciding whether they're going to further their education. Some of them have no choice but to get jobs because their families need them to work and can't afford to send them to an institution for higher education. And so, again, it's challenging. You know, it's a slow change, but it is happening where you're seeing more and more of them actually wanting to advocate for themselves and say, this is my life and this is what I want to do with it. So those traditional again, um, customs of you do what your parents say and you just shut up and take it kind of thing. It's changing slowly, but we're getting there. And so you're, you're providing an opportunity to be mentors to a lot of young women. Yeah, it's important because my aunt's legacy, which is what we're trying to preserve and continue through DRASA and this organization, was all about making sure that people had the best opportunities possible. She was all about education and training and making sure that even within the hospital where she worked, her doctors knew what to do. And she was a mentor to all of the junior doctors in that hospital. They all looked up to her. They all knew they could turn to her for advice and not just about doctor life, but personal life as well. And so that's definitely something that we're trying to continue through the organization. And so what would be some of your advice if a young woman wanted to get involved in some of the work you're doing, for example, in in health or just being involved in some of these areas where you're you're working so hard to improve the life of many people? What What would your advice be for them? For me, I actually started as a volunteer. So I didn't know for sure exactly where within public health and global health and security, all those things that I wanted to be, but I knew it was not something I was interested in. So I volunteered with an organization that was working in Kenya and we were working to bring water and pipelines to villages that didn't have any. And the reason for that was because the children in those villages, their parents would wake up in the morning and go to work and their jobs were to go and fetch water every day. So they couldn't go to school because they had to walk miles and miles to go and get water every day. And so that was when I realized that, wow, look at this. This is something so simple and so basic that everybody in the Western world takes for granted. You turn on the tap and there's water. These kids can't go to school because of that. And so I think volunteering and reaching out to people who are doing the kind of work that you think you want to do is a great way to kind of get your feet in and get your feet wet and kind of find out exactly where your niche is because there's so many things you could do that have such a big impact with youth, with women. It's all part of the same mission. So I would say volunteering volunteering and reaching out to people and organizations that can even just have informational interviews with you, tell you about the work they're doing, their challenges, what they found that has been fulfilling in their work. Because I also think in these areas, you have to be passionate because it's hard. <laughs> you're dealing with things that you're, you're working against the norm right now. So we're trying to change the norm. And in doing that, if you don't have the passion, you can get tired and you can get burnt out. So it's very important to do as much searching around as possible to find what it is that you're so passionate about that you know like okay this is it I'm going all the way <laughs> no, that's, that's great I very often tell young people when they ask me what they should do I say what is your passion yeah you know, exactly I mean what is it that you think that gets you up in the morning and makes you want to work hard on it exactly and I think that's a that's that's an important point that you're making. Um, so thanks yeah. for that. And I also noticed that you you raised the point of water security, which is one of the mm. things that we're doing in WCAPS is trying to show how the different areas of peace and security and conflict really do interact. Yeah. They are very much connected. So it's good that you raised that point about having to go and get water and not being able to go yeah. to school because that impacts so many other things about what people can do and, and other challenges. So I think that's a good point that you raised. So I want to thank you for that one. Yeah, it's a ripple effect, so... 
Are there organizations in your part of Nigeria or Nigeria overall that focus on women issues and empowering women, particularly in peace and security issues? I'm just curious because one of the things we're trying to do at WCAF course is to liaise with a number of other organizations and mm. to find out what, because a lot of interesting organizations exist that are focusing on women in peace and security and conflict. Just curious as to whether you're aware of any in, in Nigeria. Yeah, I'm aware of a couple and I can do more research and get you some concrete contacts and stuff like that. But there are definitely people working on it, especially, like I said, in the northern part of Nigeria, because the northern part is Muslim and the southern part is Christian. Mm -hmm. And so in the north, there's a lot more issues around women and their needs and trying to work against, again, traditional Muslim laws and Sharia law and all of those kind of things. So it's not really what we do particularly, but I'm aware that there are many people doing some really good things there to get women just to be seen differently by their husbands and by their brothers and their fathers and their brothers-in-law and all of that. So again, it's slow, it's hard, but it is something that's happening. I think Nigeria still has a long way to go when it comes to that. When we look at our government, for example, the leaders of this nation, I really don't know how many women there are in, in <laughs> seats of power in, in the sense of making policies and steering the direction of the country. So I think until we see women having access to some of those things, we just have to keep pushing because we're definitely not there yet. But there are some, to answer your question, yes, there are organizations doing really good work. More in the South, what you see is down here, we get a lot more organizations working on issues of domestic violence and things like that. But in terms of peace and security in the North, there, there are so many because we also have a Boko Haram problem. We have terrorism. We have women and children being displaced or women being taken captive by these terrorists and being kept. And then they're released eventually, or they're like the Chibok girls. They were, some of them have been found and they've had children by their captors. And so they have a little bit of Stockholm syndrome. And so there are all of these issues definitely in, in the countries. I do know of a few. I hope that, I'm not sure, but I hope that we have more than the ones that I'm aware of because we certainly have a lot of issues around women. I want you to say a little bit more about that. I mean, I think that's such a, an important issue, the whole Boko Haram issue and yeah. the fact that our group is focusing on women of color, advanced peace and security and focus on peace and security in women and young girls. Could you just say a little bit more about that issue just to update people on what's going on? Because I think yeah. it's a, a strong interest in that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's no longer really being talked about much in the news or the media, but the, the threat is still very much there. People have still been displaced. And we have, I don't even know what the numbers are, but too many people who have been displaced. And so these IDP camps, IDP is internally displaced person. So these IDP camps have been set up all over the country. They're not government funded. So mostly it's UNICEF and donor agencies that are running them and are supplying the food and the toiletries and everything that the people in these camps need. But they're very informal settlements and they're basically people who have been pushed out of where they live by the terrorists and they have to settle in basically open plots of land wherever they find them. They're all over the, the state of Lagos. They're all over the South. And many of them have traveled far, far, far from their villages in the North. And again, it, this ties into women because you displaced a woman from her household. She still has to care for her husband and her children. She still has to to find food for them. Her husband still has to go out and try and find work in a new state where maybe he doesn't speak the language. And there are so many challenges around the terrorism angle of things and the impact that it has on this current generation, the current family structures and future. Because when you think of the kids that have been displaced, it's like they're growing up in a place that's not where their parents grew up. They're growing up in a place that they now have to adjust. And what are, their, what are the chances that they're really going to school and getting the kind of education that they need when their parents are struggling to feed them? It's, it's a big challenge. 
challenge. And I think it's ongoing. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely want to do a podcast on just issues of IDPs and displacement yeah. and how it, how it affects women and the role that women are playing to, you know, to take care of their families and yeah. strength of women to get through that. And I would, would love to do some discussions on that because I think that's a very important issue. It is, it is. And I, I'm going to conclude with some questions about U.S. foreign policy. And in the work that you're doing in southern Nigeria and, and on health, are there U.S. foreign policy issues that are directly impacting your work in any way? Or are you getting any funding from the U.S.? Or any, or is there a connection at all between policies of the U.S. and what you're doing right now? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said before, we've our country is basically set up to respond when things happen. And usually that means that we require U.S. donor funding. When Ebola came, it was the U.S. that had set up previously, U.S. donor money that had set up a TB ward, so a ward for people with drug-resistant tuberculosis. And the ward was under construction, almost finished when Ebola hit Nigeria. And we didn't have any kind of isolation facility or anywhere to put the people who were sick. And so we were able to use that U.S.-funded facility it was for TB, so they moved the tuberculosis patients out and moved the Ebola patients in. But that's a perfect example of without that, we would have had nowhere to put them. And generally, the U.S. has funded so many great projects. Like I said, I worked for an organization in D.C. 90% of our projects were USAID funded. And we worked in Nigeria and Ghana and all over the African continent. And the work we did was important and it made a difference. And so looking at things now and the way it looks, it's discouraging, you know, to mm-hmm. see that things are, it's almost like the support is no, we can't no longer rely on that, which is one of the reasons why we started DRASA anyway, is to try and see if we can build capacity here, but it's a process. It's not overnight. And we very much need support from the U.S. In fact, we're working with partners from the U.S. We wouldn't be able to do what we're doing with DRASA if we didn't have our partners based in the U.S. So it's so important that policies there are being informed by the realities here on the ground for people to see that when you're talking about peace and security issues, for example, these are issues that, yeah, okay, this is a Nigerian problem seemingly on the surface, but really this is a global problem because like we saw, again, I keep saying with Ebola, it ended up in different continents. It ended up all over the place. It could have spread globally. This thing, just because it's happening here doesn't mean it cannot reach the U.S. And so I think it's in the interest of the policymakers to truly understand that and to not cut funding or make policies that are not favorable for organizations to come here and do the work that is needed to support the people like us here on the ground trying to make a difference. Great. And I totally agree with you and everything you're saying. These are global problems. And the U.S. has played, as you said, has done a lot of funding and resources and, and time. Yeah. And hopefully that will continue. It's a challenging time here in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, policies and the things that are being said and done, but hopefully calmer and reasoned minds will prevail. Uh, yeah. I definitely want you to encourage your colleagues out there to go to our website, WCAPS.org. It is a global organization. It's new, as you know, started in September, but we definitely want to have a lot of members. We want to start developing some working groups around certain issues and mm-hmm. developing some dialogue and developing networks. So please do share with your friends the existence of the group even though we're in the U.S. it's definitely a global organization because as you said these are all global issues peace they're not domestic in the sense that they don't affect other people even though people don't realize it it really these things really do for the last thing I would ask you an organization like 
W Caps, which is really dedicated to a network for women of color, a place for dialogue, a place to discuss real substantive issues, to mm-hmm. hear from great women like you who are doing wonderful things out there uh, around the world. What is it that you would like to see W Caps do? What would it be? I think, to be honest, what you've just described, I'm not aware of any other organization doing what you're doing, bringing women of color together, giving us a voice, giving us a platform to get to know each other, to promote what we're doing, and just generally to encourage others to join us. I think it's very important. And I look forward to the working groups like you've talked about and just really making those connections. I'm so glad that we were able to meet in Ghana and really talk about this because it's amazing. And I look forward to events and maybe conferences and things like that also in the future where we can really support one another because it's so important. Like I said, we're all passionate about what we do, but maybe we're all doing it in silos. You know, we don't all know each other. We can't really see the ways we can support. But once we're all together on a platform, united in a group, it just makes it easier to get those things done. So I'm very much looking forward to what's going to come out of WCAPS. Well, great. And this has been really a nice interview. And I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this. I know you're different hours from me here in Washington. (laughs) Thank you so much for all the hard work you're doing, the work that you're dedicated to, the sacrifices your family has made for all of these issues dealing with health. And really want to thank you again for being part of our WCAPS early days of our work. So others who are out there, definitely join the membership and continue to listen to our podcast that we'll be doing in the future. So thank you again. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for joining Women of Color, Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit wcaps.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org.